Well, good morning. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans 1. Romans 1. As I described last week, we finished Exodus two weeks ago. I wanted to do two messages that are transitional messages, and then next week begin in Luke. And I think that's a really good time because Christmas is coming up and we'll be able to go through the nativity stories and or narratives and go through it that way. But uh, today I want to preach a sermon called Being Light in the Darkness. And um, by, by all standards of measurement, our, our nation is headed the wrong direction. Matter of fact, uh, the majority of people in the United States think we're headed in the wrong direction. And of course, they blame everybody else for their, for their problems, right? Uh, unrest is the new normal. It, it, it seems that uh, the debates about the issue of the day, they're only getting sharper, aren't they? There's no agreement outside of the debate. It is, it is possible that the division in our nation is the sharpest it's been since before the Civil War. Governments, I'm talking about federal, state, local, are trending more totalitarian with each passing day. Uh, it used to be, life used to be free of mandates, didn't it? Now, now mandates seem to be a way of life. A- added to that, for the, for the Christian, our culture has taken an ominous direction, hasn't it? There's an ominous trend to our culture. For example, to affirm two genders are created by God and are unchangeable is considered hate speech and can get you fired. You get fired for not using the right pronouns. To, to defend marriage of one man and one woman automatically puts you on the wrong side of history. Churches have been penalized for, openly, for staying open during the COVID uh, pandemic or the COVID mandates, whatever you want to call it. And they've been sued and they've been threatened and by government officials for staying open. And yet, 80,000 people can gather to watch a football game together with no social distancing but we're spreaders of coronavirus because we meet together to worship the living God. And, and so there's, there's a definite trend in our culture t- towards antagonism of Christianity. So what's going on? I, I mentioned this in, in the summertime. I, I mentioned this, and it's good to remember. Romans chapter 1 tells us very clearly that our nation is under judgment. There's no two ways about it. We are under judgment right now. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse number 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so what do they do? Why is the wrath coming? What does it say? It says the wrath is coming because they suppress truth. Verse number, next verse, verse number 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. You can know about God 
whether or not you know a church because God plainly shows it to every human being alive. It's very clear. Judgment comes because they're suppressing the truth. Paul goes on to state that the wrath of God comes because these people, because they suppress the truth about God, they worship everything but God, right? Everything but God is their idol. This judgment that is coming from the Lord then takes three phases. There's three steps. There's three um, phases in this. And we see this in the word the, 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 the word that you need to see in Romans here is the word God gave them up. God gave them up. Look at verse number 24. The first thing that happens when God judges a nation is a sexual revolution. He says, therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So the first step is the sexual revolution, and it comes because now they no longer believe the truth about God, that there is one God over the universe, that uh, he, is, he is omnipotent, that he is righteous and holy, and all these things, because they don't remember that, they give in to their passions, and that is the sexual revolution. We were there 50 years ago, right? 50 years ago. Next, the next step in his judgment is the homosexual revolution. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing uh, shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. We've been there. We've been there for over 20 years, probably almost 30 years, haven't we? I mean, now, now um, same-sex marriage is, is legal in all 50 states, and, and um, we are well along in the second step. If you've ever been somewhere like an amusement park or something like that, or you've been to a national park or something, they have a, a pin. You look at the map and it says, you are here, right? That's where we are right now in the next section we're going to read, verse number 28. The third step is he gives them over to a depraved mind, literally insanity. The, the word there is... Um, is unstable. It's, it's an unstableness of mind. Verse number 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, an unfit mind. It means unfit to do what ought not to be done. You are here. This is where we are. We've been here for a few years, right? Think about it. We now have, and I'm not being derogatory, we have a mentally ill person directing our Department of Health and Human Services. Debased mind. I'm just using Scripture. Unfit mind is what Scripture calls it. We no longer call people mothers. We're supposed to call them birthing people. Why do you have to call them birthing people? Because everyone knows that men can now give birth. Right? That's what they say. If you're biologically born female, 
but you identify as male and you want to give birth to a baby, then you are obligated, according to our, our officials, to call that person a man or a birthing person. It's no longer Mother's Day. It's birthing person's day. This is the insanity that happens when people reject God. When, when a nation is under judgment, these are the three steps that you see. This is what God says. God told us this 2,000 years ago. That this is the way we're going to do. By the way, if you disagree with this, if you disagree with what they're saying, you know what you are? You're a domestic terrorist. You're, you're an extremist. If you disagree with this, you are a danger. And believe me, they really think that you are dangerous. You're breaking the law. You're a homophobe. You're transphobic. You need to be silenced. You need to be terminated. You need to be marginalized. This is the heart of what we call the cancel culture. This is where we are. Let me say one more thing. If you want to use a word to describe the leading edge of this movement, it's Bolshevik. Now, we're not Russian, but you've got to realize that that if you know history, the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks, the soft Marxists and the hard Marxists, the Bolsheviks are the hard Marxists, and these are the people that are leading the front edge of our culture. I want you to know this. This is not a laughing matter. They literally view you as a danger. This is where we're headed. I'm not, I'm not being political, by the way. This is a cultural observation. This is where our culture is headed. So we are here. Our nation is under God's wrath. And it's not just us, is it? Acts 14 tells us that God allowed all nations to go their own way. This is the cycle of human history. This is the way of all nations. We are now in an evil kingdom. You, you've got to understand this. It's no longer God and country. It's no longer God and apple pie and Chevrolet. We live in an evil nation. Our kingdom is so evil that God has unleashed his wrath on our nation. You can't look at it anyway. Please don't try to come up and patriotically defend our nation because you will be going against what God said in Scripture. God is judging our nation right now because of its wickedness. We've been living through this judgment for a number of decades, from the sexual revelation through the homosexual revolution, now the reprobate mind where people can't even think straight. And so here's my question. I know this is a sobered introduction. I I know you didn't walk in here today expecting this. But here's the question that we have to answer. And we have to answer this. What is our reaction to all this? What is our reaction? It 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 does give us a sense of fear about the bleakness of what the future looks like for our children, doesn't it? You think, what kind of nation? I have grandchildren. Uh, two and four, and, and there's this natural tendency. What kind of nation are my, ch- my grandchildren going to grow up in? Can I tell you this? I've said this before. They are born for a time like this. God perfectly placed your children, your grandchildren, in our society at this time, knowing what's coming, and he placed them here for a time like this, and he 
will sustain them. Isn't that wonderful to know? It's a wonderful truth. And so, what, so we, we, uh, we, we need to know how we um, are going to live in a time like this. As we see the sins of this generation being visited on the following generations, and by the way, what does God say over and over? He's a merciful, wonderful, gracious God, but he will visit the iniquity of the parents on the children for how many generations? Three to four. That's where we are. We're starting down that trend. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer. You have to be realistic about where we're going. These people can't be laughed at. They can't be ignored. We as a, we as a, a church need to know how to live. Now, one more thing is as we begin to answer this question, one more thing that we have to understand is that there are two distinct kingdoms. There are two distinct kingdoms. One is is marked by righteousness and light and Christ and believers and and God. It's called the kingdom of God. That's one kingdom. But there's another kingdom in the United States. That's a kingdom marked by lawlessness and darkness. It's the kingdom of Satan. It has unbelievers and idols. And there is no possibility of these two kingdoms coming together on any common cause. They can't come together on anything of any eternal significance or any spiritual significance. There's no possibility, none whatsoever. Now, one kingdom is old and another one is new. One is earthly, another is heavenly. One is deadly, the other is life-giving. One is material, the other is, is spiritual One is lying and the other is truthful. And these two kingdoms can never, ever come together. They're they're like, for the analogy, oil and water. They will not mix. One kingdom, the kingdom of Satan, is a kingdom of lies, continual lies. It's, It's a kingdom of evil. Think about verse number 25. Look at verse number 25. They exchanged the truth of God for what? For a lie. For lie. They believe lies. They would rather have lies. And so therefore they lie. Jesus told the religious rulers of his day, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. There it is. Because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Remember last week, when I talked about the, 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 the characteristics of God, I said, God is love. And you can't divide that. I, God is also truth, and it's indivisible. However, the opposite is true about Satan. Satan is the Satan of lies. That's his character. It's indivisible. And so we live in, in uh, we are the kingdom of light, kingdom of truth, living in the kingdom of lies. I mean, think about the lies. They literally tell us that they can, they can spend $3 trillion extra dollars and it won't cost us a dime. I mean, seriously, if you believe that, you, there's no possible way you can believe it. They are liars. As a matter of fact, let me help you out. The, some of you are going to think I'm, I'm going over the top here. Pretty much whatever comes out of the government's mouth, you ought not to believe. 
Okay? And I'm not indicting the American government. I'm saying that this is part of the kingdom of, of darkness, isn't it? And they are liars. The most dangerous threat to a kingdom of lies is the truth. Let me say it one more time. The most dangerous threat to the kingdom of lies is the truth. That is why telling people that God made two, da- two genders that are permanently fixed for their whole life is hateful and must be silenced. Right? Telling people that there is a God that is truth and therefore we can know absolute truth is hate speech. They must silence the truth because they are in the kingdom of lies. Secondly, it's a kingdom of death. The evil kingdom is a kingdom of death. In John 8, 44 that we just read, Satan is called a murderer. The people of this kingdom are also murderers. I could give you multitudinous examples. I'll give you one, abortion. What do they do? They lie. They say it's about a woman's health. That is an absolute abject lie. And they lie so they can commit murder. Right? It's also a kingdom of darkness. The evil kingdom is a kingdom of darkness. Isaiah 5.20. Look at what Isaiah says to the leaders of the day. Woe to those who call good evil, I'm, I'm sorry, evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. The evil kingdom switches everything. Switches everything. Everything is inside out. Everything is upside down. It is now immoral to preach out against homosexuality. It's, it's good to tell a girl to have an abortion. It's immoral to persuade her not to. It's good to tell a misguided teenager that transgenderism is okay. It's immoral to counsel them there's a better way. It's called God's way. That's immoral. Are you getting uncomfortable? You might be. You might be influenced by your culture. These are the things that our culture is telling us. Everything is flipped upside down. Literally everything is flipped upside down. It's a kingdom of darkness. But where do we live? Where are we citizens? If you're in Christ, where are you a citizen? You're a citizen of the kingdom of God. Now remember, right now, that is a spiritual kingdom. It's a, it's a kingdom of light and truth. Ours is a kingdom of light and truth and freedom. At present, it's a spiritual one, uh, kingdom, but one day it's going to be physical and spiritual and eternal. But there is only one true king of all the earth. There is a king of the kingdom of darkness, but that king, Satan, is subservient to the king of the universe. Isn't he? And we serve the king of kings and lord of lords, for the God is a king of all earth. Sing praises. You know, we live in dark times, but what do we do? We sing praises to the king of the universe, don't we? We, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. Praise be to God that his kingdom is eternal. Praise be to God that one day the spiritual will become uh, physical. The, the spiritual will be 
all over all the earth, and it'll be visible for all of us to see. There'll be no more unrighteousness. Isn't that a wonderful thought? When Jesus began his earthly ministry, he began by preaching the kingdom sermons. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. It's here right now. And so Satan is the ruler of the kingdom of darkness, but Christ is the king of the universe. The kingdom of heaven is here, and nothing, nothing, nothing is going to stop that kingdom. It's wonderful, wonderful. Now there's one important truth that you need to understand. Please hear what I'm about to say. Please hear this. What happens in this kingdom Not the one that we are citizens of. I'm talking about the earthly kingdom, the satanic kingdom. What happens in this kingdom has no bearing on the kingdom of God. None at all. When Jesus was standing before Pilate, he made it abundantly clear. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Do you realize the implication of that, that one little verse right there? What does that one little truth that Jesus say, what is the implication? You know what it is? They can rage against God's people, and the kingdom is unstoppable. They can legislate laws. They can try to suppress the gospel. They cannot suppress the gospel. It is unstoppable, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It does not matter. Now, we are to pray that we, have, we live in peaceful times and our authorities are, are um, 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 favorable towards the gospel, but they can, they can pass the laws, any kind of laws they want in Washington to try to suppress the gospel, and it will not affect the gospel at all. I'm sorry. Jesus is not sitting on the throne right now saying, oh man, I hope they don't pass that law. (laughs) He's not. It doesn't matter to him. His gospel will go out. If, If they outlaw church altogether, his gospel will probably go out with greater power than it ever has before. The kingdoms, they, they, that kingdom cannot affect the kingdom that we're citizens of. If not one person in our government acknowledges it, God is on the throne. Jesus is reigning. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, ruler of what? The kings of the earth. All right? Um, John saw a vision. And he says, uh, let me see, I'm, I'm messed up here. Here we go. No, I'm still messed up. I'll just read it. At one, yeah, at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one was seated. He wasn't pacing back and forth, wondering what President Biden's going to do, wondering what Governor Northam's going to do, wondering what the President of France is going to do. I can't remember who that is at the point. Who is it? Macron, thank you. Right? He's not worried about any of that. He's seated on his throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow, and it had the appearance of emerald. He's not worried about a thing because his kingdom's going to keep going. 
We are citizens of a spiritual kingdom that will never fade. It will never fail like every other earthly kingdom has ever done. Every single one has failed and will fail. Our king displays not the slightest concern that his kingdom is threatened because the world's kingdoms cannot threaten it. God, through Isaiah, said that all the armies of all the nations of the world are like dust on the scales. I'm not worried about any of them. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. I'll move them wherever I want to move them, just like chess pieces. God is on the throne. God's kingdom, Daniel tells us this, God's kingdom is like a stone made without hand, and one day his kingdom will demolish all the other kingdoms and just pulverize them, and no trace of them will ever be found again. Won't that be a wonderful time? That is so encouraging. But let's get sober for just a minute about our current situation and ask the question one more time, how then do we live? Do we hide? Do we live in fear for our lives? Live in fear for our grandchildren and our children? I know. We build a compound. (laughs) We build a Christian compound, and we'll all get along and sing Kumbaya. Wait. We take up arms, and we defend our Christian rights and liberties. That's what we do. Is that what we do? We take our cues from the New Testament, from what God tells us. The first thing that we do, what do we do when things get dark? We should be doing it already. We push back against the darkness and lies with light and truth. We proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now what we do? Turn to Matthew 28. Matthew 28, verse 18. Everybody knows this. just want to point out a couple things about it. Jesus is getting ready to leave. He's going to ascend. Right at this point, the religious leaders of Jerusalem are against Jesus. They hated him. They killed him, right? But soon, they're going to be against Jesus. The disciples. And then, pretty quickly, the whole Roman government is going to be against Christianity. And what does Jesus tell these disciples? Verse number 18. All what? Authority. Because he is what? He's king of kings and lord of lords. All authority in heaven and earth. Not all the authority in Jerusalem. Not all the authority in Judea. Not just this little thimbleful of authority, all authority in the whole universe and in the heavens, the heavenly realm where God dwells, has been given to me. It's been given to me, and this is what I'm telling you to do. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always till the end of the age. He's with us right now. And his authority is with us as well. 
when we preach the gospel, his authority is being preached. His power is going out. And that power, by the way, either causes people to submit or causes people to fight. Depending on what kingdom they're in. We push back boldly, proclaiming the gospel. We shine that light. Darkness hates the light. Liars hate truth. And it all started in Jerusalem. When Peter and the apostles preached the gospel in the temple, they were arrested. And the council interrogated them. And so Acts 5.40, this is what it says. And when they called the apostles, they beat them. And they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. What does the next verse say? And they got together and said, guys, they just came out with a policy on the Temple Mount. We can no longer preach Christ there. We're going to have to come up with another plan. Is it what they said? No. And they left the presence of the council. What was the word? After a beating, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. We cannot be silenced. We don't cower in fear. We don't close our mouths. Let me ask you, are you fulfilling your commission? Are you fearing man rather than God? Do you not mention Christ to your co-workers because of policies? It would be ridiculous if the, the disciples came back and said, you know what, the policy is that I don't mention Christ up on the Temple Mount, so I'm not going to do it. And yet, that's what we do. Work says, oh, no, I shouldn't mention Christ, so I'm not going to. I don't, I don't offend. Look, when I was on the rescue squad, we were not supposed to talk about religion. I didn't. I talked about Christ. <laughs> we, were, we weren't supposed to uh, pray. I prayed. If, if they, always in the back, okay, I can't believe I'm telling this story. This is not in my notes. It just popped in my head. A lot of times I was a driver because they didn't like the way the other people drove. And so I'd be driving the, the ambulance and, and somebody was really suffering. They'd, they'd, you know, these people aren't believers. And they'd say, hey, don't worry. That guy up there, Jared, he's a pastor. And that's supposed to give them comfort. And so I would, have people, I would pray with people. You know, if I, I hear them or whatever, um, I would pray with people if I could. We do not shrink back. We don't. We preach the gospel, proclaim it, push back against the darkness. The darkness doesn't want you to mention the name of Christ, does it? They hate the truth. Secondly, this is so important. This is critical in importance. We live joyfully. Did you see? They got a beating and they rejoiced. What if you got fired for witnessing? Would you rejoice? Would you rejoice? Would you, are you so heavenly minded that you would, you would rejoice and say, praise God, I am, will, I am worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ because I proclaim Christ. The, the world, think about this, we're, we're to live joyfully. The world is an angry place, isn't it? Can I ask you a, a really important question? Let's see which way. Do you see any joy 
in Washington, D.C. I don't see any joy there, none whatsoever. Do you see any joy on the evening news? What would you say you see on the evening news? Anger? Frustration? Fighting? I don't know. I don't watch it. You shouldn't be watching it either. It's pointless. Tell me the last time you watched the news and it actually improved your life. Why? Why do it? You you know what's happening anyway because everybody's talking about it. Spend your time doing something better. There is not joy in this present kingdom, however. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and what? Joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what our kingdom is. It's a joyful kingdom. Are you joyful today? Are you joyful for what Christ has done for you? Are you living in joy? Joy is independent of your circumstances. Paul told the Corinthians, in all our affliction, I am overflowing. Paul, he's the one who prayed that the cup of suffering would be removed from him, remember? And Christ said, my grace is sufficient for you. And so what does Paul say? He says, well then, in my affliction, whatever this thorn in my flesh is, I will overflow with joy. You know what joy is? Joy is the fruit of being with Jesus. The, it's, it's the fruit of a relationship with Christ. These things have I spoken to you. I'll prove it. John 15. These things I have spoken to you that. Whose joy? Whose joy? Jesus' joy. My joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Are you full of joy? If you're not full of joy right now, dear believer, then get in his word. Get to know Christ. That's where your joy comes from. It doesn't come from the Redskins. I know I'm not supposed to use that word. Winning a football game. Does it? It doesn't come from the last great stock tip that you got. And it doesn't come because somebody blue or red got into a public office. That's not where joy comes from. Joy comes from Jesus Christ. That's how Paul told the Philippians to live. Turn now with me, because we're going to look at this passage, Philippians chapter number 2. Philippians chapter number 2. Now, Philippi the city, I'm going to just tell you this about Philippi. Philippi the city was a rough place. You ever seen the movie Pirates of the Caribbean? It was like the Wild West Pirates of the Caribbean type place. Um, Philippi, just so you know, was sort of like the retirement community for Roman soldiers. They were rough individuals. There were some really bad things that happened around Philippi. There was a battle with 200,000 soldiers near Philippi. 40,000 people lost their lives there. Philippi is a rough, rough neighborhood. Somebody was joking with me today. I'll just say it was like Compton. Okay, if you know that reference, you'll know what I'm talking about. Philippi was rough, pagan, corruption. And this is what um, Paul wrote, remember, from prison, he wrote to Philippi. And he said in verse number 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. I could preach a whole sermon right there. Are you grumbling and disputing 
about your circumstances right now? Are you? Don't do it. So that, why? Why? So that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Does that not describe our culture? Crooked and twisted generation. Among whom, look at what do we do? We shine as lights because we're of the kingdom of light. And then he says, holding fast to the word of life, we're also the kingdom of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and what? Rejoice. He's not rejoicing by himself. He's rejoicing with you all because you should be glad and rejoice with me. Look, our country is going down the toilet. I know that's crass, but it's true. But we can be glad and rejoice. We're, we're, We're to live with joy. We're not angry. We're not hostile. We're not malicious. We're not vengeful. We're not screaming about inequities. We're not grumbling, complaining. We don't live that way. We stay on the side of righteousness and peace and joy and gratitude. And why are we so joyful? Why are we so joyful? Because our sins have been forgiven, right? We, they have been. And we distinguish ourselves <coughs> as, as be, living in the kingdom of, of um, light rather than in darkness because of our joy, because of our contentment and peace. So do this. Turn the news off. You won't be ignorant, trust me. There's nothing. Let me, can I tell you what happened? By all accounts, last Sunday was a wonderful Sunday. The spirit in the sanctuary was, was you could feel the love and unity. It was just a wonderful day all around, hanging out with the youth that night and uh, got to hear some of these testimonies Sunday night as well. It was a wonderful, wonderful day. Monday morning, I wake up in a great mood. Monday's my day off, and I did something that I never do and I should not have done. Before I read my Bible, I grabbed my phone and I looked at the news. And I'm not kidding you. I was so frustrated about what I saw happening in government that I could not have joy in my Bible reading initially. I had to apologize to the Lord. There's, there's, no, there's no redeeming, nothing redeeming about following the ins and outs of everything. Nothing at all. So, put your mind on Christ. Have your heart in heaven, and you will be a joyful person. Let me give you another one. Let me give you one last one. We need to meet together. We need to meet together. God made us to draw our encouragement from one another. The early church, you know what they could have called themselves? They could have called themselves the together church. Acts 2.44, this is right after the sermon at Pentecost. And all who believed were together, were together, and had all things in common. Verse number 46, and day by day attending the temple, how? Together, and breaking bread in homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Go on, Acts chapter number 5. Now many signs and wonders 
were regularly done by the people, by the hands of the apostles, and they were all where? Together in Solomon's portico. And so it, it, they were the together church, and they drew encouragement from one another. They, uh, they, were, they were always together. And the question is, why? Why is it so important that we get together? The answer is that it's encouraging. Not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some is, but what? Encouraging. You see, you don't neglect to meet together because when you get together, what happens? You are encouraged. Are you, aren't you most of the time encouraged when you walk out of here on Sunday mornings? I would like to think in part it's because of the sermon. But it's also because you're together, right? We're together. We encourage one another. Worship services are good, but you need more than just a worship service, don't you? We, 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 we here at Providence have created structures to help you get together. We have all kinds of Bible studies. I was talking to, um, I was talking to uh, our youth pastor candidate who's coming in, in during Christmas vacation going to be here. I'll say more about that. And he was, he was amazed at all the stuff that we have going on that is Bible study related. We have women's Bible studies. We have men's Bible studies. We have small groups. We have men's fellowships and women's fellowships. We need one another. A sheep. And why do we need one another? Because a sheep by itself is in grave danger. A coal of fire by itself is going to be snuffed out. We need each other. We need to encourage one another. I'll say this. Isolation is a design of the devil. Isolation is the design of the devil. The isolation of the last couple of years has, has wreaked havoc on our nation. Depression, alcohol abuse, what they call um, mental issues have just skyrocketed. Drug use has skyrocketed in the last couple of years, and a lot of it is attributed to simply being isolated. God didn't make us to be isolated. Isolation is a tool of Satan. I'm just going to say it. We are meant to be together. And so these are the things that we do. We live joyfully, and we get together, and we tell people about Jesus Christ. Now, as a close... I want to talk about corporate, because this is, this is all individual level. I want to talk about corporate level for just a minute. And I want to address a couple trends that I've mentioned uh, from time to time, but they're, 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 they weigh on my heart and on my mind, and I think it's a, a way that providence can help out. One trend is this. In the last three decades, there has been a massive shift in the age of pastors. There are now more pastors over the age of 65 than there are under the age of 40. Now think about this. Many of you retire before the age of 65. And there are more pastors over the age of 65 than there are young pastors. Look at, the, look at over here. 1992, 6% of pastors were over the age of 65, and 33% of pastors were under the age of 40. Now, as of four years ago, 17% of pastors are over the age of 65, and 15% is under the age of 40. What does that tell you about pastoral ministry? No one's going into pastoral ministry. 
I shouldn't say no one. There's 360,000 churches. Not very many, not as many as there were, are going into pastoral ministry. There are more old pastors than there are pastors in their 20s and 30s. That's what the stat tells us. There's a second stat I want you to see. Half of all the churches in the United States have less than 65 people in attendance on Sunday morning. Half. That's half of what it was in 2000. When I went through seminary, it was 137 was the average. Half of all churches, the median age, you know what median means, right? The median attendance when I was in seminary in the year 2000 was 137. And now the median uh, attendance is 65 in a congregation. What does that tell you? Think through this with me. That tells you that there are many, many congregations. I know of almost no congregation of 65 that can afford a full-time pastor. Right? So the scenario works like this then. You have a guy who probably does not have um, adequate training, who's working a full-time job, and then trying with all his spare time after working a full-time job, writing a sermon, visiting people, uh, coming up with the Sunday school, and generally leading the church, right? Tell me if you could do that. What does that tell you about the church, the, the, the type of ministry that's in that church? There can't possibly be time for deep meditation on God's Word. America needs pastors. And so my prayer has been that Providence Bible Church becomes a sending church. A sending church. That we are raising, not only raising, but training pastors and Christian workers. How can we do that? How can we do that? The Bible tells us this. And you have heard, and what you have heard from me, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will also be able to teach others also. And what they have heard is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What, what Paul is tasking Timothy and the churches to do is to train pastors. That's one of our primary jobs. We need to be, be training men in ministry. We need to train men and women to know how to study the Bible so they can teach. We need teachers. We need more and more and more teachers. We need to pray that God will raise workers and change people to be willing to teach. Therefore, the elders have decided to start a Bible institute of sorts. It's, it's going to start small. The first thing that we're going to do is begin training people how to teach the Bible. We're going to start small. My prayer is that eventually this leads to ministry training a full-blown ministry training initiative at Providence Bible Church. I would like for us to begin training as early as January. Now, the way I want to work this, it's going to start out, I'm going to call it a Bible Institute, but it's not technically a Bible Institute. I want to start training lay people how to teach the Bible. It's to be separate from everything else that we do. And, and I want to teach. What kind of classes are we going to offer? Uh, Old Testament, New Testament survey be types of classes. Number two, how do you how do you exegesis? How do you come to the main point of a passage if it's if it's a teaching passage or if it's a narrative? It's different. Um, we'll teach a little bit of theology, and I have had a lot of questions about Hebrew and Greek, and I'm comfortable teaching Greek. I'll teach Greek, but we have a lot of people who want to learn Hebrew. 
I'll tell you this, the guy that we're looking at coming loves Hebrew. And so we have a, a Hebrew teacher. I'll talk about that in just a minute. Secondly, secondly, we need as a church to orient young people to the ministry. We, we have an internship. Uh, Hunter was, was one of our, intern two, our interns two years ago. We, we had an internship set up for uh, seminary and college age young people, but I want to extend that down to high school. What if we have a young person in high school who's thinking about the ministry? Let's create an internship where this young person can see what the ministry is like, where they can get some basic ministry training. This is what you'll be expecting. This is what you can do. These are the things that are involved in ministry. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And so we create a pipeline of ministry, and we're raising up children for ministry. Parents, do you want to take part in pushing back against the darkness of this world? You can do it. You can do it by encouraging your children. Encourage them. Don't, yeah, sure, you want your kid to have a good paying job, right? But a lot of parents are so scared about that. They spend a lot, that's a really good paying job. Well, guess what? Ministry is not what they would call a good paying job. We're very comfortable in ministry, put it that way. But wouldn't that, be, wouldn't that be wonderful if you saw your children pushing back against the darkness, pushing back against the lies in some kind of ministry context? It takes the whole church. Now, some of you don't have the gift of teaching. You don't have the training. I understand that. But you can still use your gift. God gives gifts. Some of you have the gift of hospitality. And you have a nice home. You could host. Maybe, maybe you could host a, uh, an intern for a few weeks. Right? You could have an intern in your home. Um, maybe you could... Uh, do you know how to operate a copier? Do you know how to download files? You laugh. But let me tell you a need that we have here at church. It's specific to the children's ministry. We need somebody who has a little bit of time who can make copies, download files, and print them, and get stuff organized for, for uh, Sunday school and, and also for junior church. Christy is a very busy person. She teaches full-time. She's in, involved in the music ministry, and then she oversees the children's ministry realm. She could use somebody who could do that and take that off her hands so that she could focus on, on making sure that the big picture is good. Anybody have those kind of skills? Maybe God's calling you to do something like that. This is dreaming big. Let me give you one more thing. This is dreaming big. I was just recently told this week that there are 69 churches in Culpeper County. 69. So that means the vast majority of them have part-time pastors. What if, and this is dreaming big, what if there's a church that could only afford to pay a guy part-time? And so they hire that guy part-time. And what if, and this is going to sound crazy to some of you, what if we hired them for the other part? So this guy wouldn't have to go work a full-time job. He could work two part-time jobs, and part-time he's here. And during that part-time, he's studying for sermons, and he's learning, he's, te- he's studying for Sunday school, and he's rubbing shoulders with the pastoral staff here. And, and we're talking about things and what's going on in the church, and we're giving good counsel to this guy and strengthening the church. And what if that church becomes a healthy church, and eventually they can hire the guy full-time? 
And then we do that again. And we do that again. In, in, 20 year, in the next 20 years, what if we do that for two churches? Would that be worth the effort? I say yes, it would be. And so we, we have that possibility here at Providence. God has blessed us richly. Do you, realize, do you realize how many people here have advanced Bible degrees in our church? We, we, have, um, we, we have one guy in our church right now. There, there are levels. I'll say this. There are three levels of Bible degrees in seminary. There's a one, and it's equivalent to one, two, and three years beyond college full-time, right? Okay. And we have a guy who is just about finished with the highest level master's degree in our church right now. Um, Mike Webb, our administrator, is in seminary right now, doing a wonderful job in seminary, learning a lot. You heard him up here praying. He did a wonderful job meditating on Psalm 1 last week. We, the youth pastor that, that we're looking at right now, he has a master divinity is what it's called. It's the most advanced degree with, with concentration in Greek and Hebrew. Of course, you know, I, I do too. I have an advanced degree. But we have other people who have bachelors in Bible. We have other people who have associates degrees in Bible. We have all kinds of people who could help out in ministry, teaching, working with people. We have wonderful Bible teachers in our church, highly qualified Bible teachers. Wouldn't it be great for Providence to be known as that kind of a church that strengthens and is a ministry pipeline? And then one last thing. I sometimes write in emails about my personal evangelism. And I'll mention it from the pulpit from time to time. I try not to talk too much about my personal evangelism because it, it just sometimes it doesn't sound right. Uh, but I want to encourage people, and I know you are. You're evangelizing one-on-one. I hear the stories, and it, and it warms my heart. But there are things that we can do corporately that we can't do individually. One of the things that the elders are exploring right now is partnering with a Christian organization that helps in the realm of foster care. There is no help in Culpeper County this way. And what it would involve, and, and uh, we're, we're moving towards this, what it would involve is, um, let's say that you, um, you're a person who gets tongue-tied, and you can't preach the gospel to somebody, but there's a foster family, and they just had a foster child dumped in their lap, and they need let's just say sheets for the bunk bed, and they don't have any bed sheets. Or maybe this little child, scared little child, first night in a home, they don't know anybody there, and we can give them a first night bag. It's got all kinds of neat little things in there for that little child. Or we help with transportation or something like that. Maybe you can't preach the gospel to somebody who doesn't know Christ, but you could be Christ's hands. And we get involved that way. We open the door Foster care is not, churches aren't involved in foster care too much here in Culpeper County. What if we became that kind of a church? You see how we can push back against the darkness in so many different ways here at Providence Bible Church? These are exciting possibilities. Let me close. My, my first year here was an adjustment year. They tell pastors, never start anything new in your first year. Just learn what the church is about. And I, I followed that. In, in the places I've been. Never do anything new in the first year. Second year I was here, we were dealing with cancer. And, and that, took a lot of, that took a lot. That took a lot of emotional and time, and you guys, you guys lived through it with us. And, um, I'm so thankful for being in this church. Third year, we dealt with coronavirus, right? We didn't meet for, I can't remember how many weeks now, six or eight. 
something like that. And, and then we came back and we dealt with everything. It was just turmoil around the social. And the, well, guess what? Uh, October started year number four for me. And you know what? I'm restless. I'm restless for us to be doing uh, God's work and doing the best that we can, using our gifts and our abilities to further the kingdom of God. And I said this last week, I don't know what God's secret will is for Providence Bible Church. We will know in the future. It hasn't been revealed to us now. But I believe that we must try everything that we can during these times that I described earlier to push back against the darkness. Whatever our gifts, whatever our abilities are, we don't cower, we don't hide, we push back against the darkness of gospel truth any way we can. We serve with joy because we are forgiven and we meet together and we encourage one another. Will you pray with me about all this and will you be willing to serve? Lord, I thank you for the truth of the gospel. I thank you for the blessed privilege we have of, of sharing the truth, sharing the light, uh, pushing back against the darkness, knowing, Lord, that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, knowing that our kingdom is not here, but it's in heaven, it's eternal, it's, it can't be altered or changed, and knowing that we have the greatest news in all the world. Lord, I pray that it will be your will that we push back in these different kinds of ways and that you'll be glorified and honored and pleased with Providence Bible Church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.